0: I joke that this is like the hardest way to build a video editor, just because like you have to build a high-performance application on the browser, high-performance rendering engine on the server, marry those two things together, make sure they don't get out of sync, add multiplayer on top of all that, and so it's like a lot of different pieces that all have to like line up to get the experience working properly.
1: Welcome to episode one of the Browser Tech Podcast. I'm your host, Paul. To kick things off, today's episode is a conversation I had back in October with Lucas McGartland, founder of Sequence, a cinema-grade video editor that runs in the browser. Our conversation goes under the hood of Sequence, into CRDTs, WebGL, and pixel streaming. I hope you enjoy. So to get started, I would love to just hear about the origin story of Sequence.
0: Yes. So the idea for Sequence occurred on August 4th, 2020, when one of my buddies who, I went to USC, I did not go to film school, but I had a lot of friends that went to film school. One of them hit me up with a project he was working on, peak pandemic, you know, we're all living alone, you know, just working from home and he hit me up about a project he's working on and I want to like work on this video product with him and I had just switched to a Chromebook and there was no way to edit video on my Chromebook and I, I looked around at like what the options were for uh, browser-based video editing you know I think there were things like ClipChamp was out at the time and there's one called like video. there's a there's a bunch of things but they were all like these very like lightweight kind of Consumer grade tools that would be fine for quick edits, but nothing on the level of like a proper NLE like Adobe Premiere or Final Cut Pro or something like that. And so, with this project that he's working on Premiere, there was just no way for me to run that software on my Chromebook. And putting my engineering hat on, I started just thinking about this, and I realized even if you could wave a magic wand and get Premiere running in a web browser using modern web technologies like WebAssembly, like WebGL. My really crappy $400 Chromebook that I was using at the time, would just not have enough horsepower to actually render composite, you know, high fidelity video assets. So that led me to this idea of, Hey, why don't we just stick all the hard computational stuff in the cloud and then just stream it back in real time. I think this was right around when, I think Google Stadia still existed at that point. I think that was still like the pixel stream stuff was like very new and kind of this this forced constraint of the hardware capabilities led to the idea of, Hey, let's just do pixel streaming for video rendering. And so that idea of like high performance, UI running locally in the web browser, meaning a high performance, like rendering an engine running in the cloud and like squishing those two together, you get like Figma plus final cut pro, like all mashed on one. And I was like, Oh, I gotta go build this thing nice. and three years later. Yeah.
1: I'm curious about the, on the pixel streaming side. So it, I guess to to kind of start with, is everything in the browser window pixel streamed or are you sort of doing it on a component
0: basis? No. So I, it's funny, like I, in general, I actually like very anti-pixel streaming. That's like, that's a, you know, a way you can, you can frame it. I think that pixel streaming is a really interesting type of technology that's good for like a handful of use cases where you need like high performance compute. Because you're sending a video stream with ultra low latency in real time back to the browser, you're eating up a ton of your internet bandwidth. I used to work at an ISP, so I'm very familiar with like the constraints of like how much bandwidth you need for HD video, which actually isn't a lot, but just like what goes into compressing that and like the work and how like how you're actually, you know, if you're trying to just transmit, you know, some text It wouldn't make sense to like pixel stream you know like you know a page of text because it's like oh you can just you know send those bytes across so like for things where you're just drawing text or rectangles like really really basic things it's like why would you use pixel streaming for that like i think there's a lot of interesting like remote desktop applications that like it's like wait we could like just run the software locally because it's not that like graphically intensive to render but then when you get into things like 3d modeling or advanced compositing video editing these sorts of like cad applications like I think video games, obviously like, I think pixel streaming becomes really interesting to offload that hardware, especially if you even need like really, really particular hardware requirements that you might not have locally, like specific ASICs dedicated for certain types of tasks. I think pixel streaming becomes interesting. What I didn't want to do was make the whole UI pixel stream because one, then you're using, you have less data and your bandwidth available for the video quality. And then two, you want like a really, really low latency user interface. And most of the user interface for a video editor is just a bunch of rectangles and text anyway. So it's very, that's like very easy to draw locally. So it's, I joke that this is like the hardest way to build a video editor, just because like you have to build a high performance application on the browser, high performance rendering engine on the server, marry those two things together, make sure they don't get out of sync, add multiplayer on top of all that. And so it's like a lot of different pieces, moving pieces that all have to like line up to get experience working properly but it was very important to like for me to figure out how do we use pixel streaming as efficiently as possible and just that's why like just the preview monitor and sequence is the only bit that's being rendered server side it's interesting so if you if you we can maybe in post i don't know if the podcast is going to be video or not we can throw up a, a screenshot but you have like your kind of preview monitor that has the actual video preview, and then you have like a, a panel on your left that is your library, and then you have a panel on your right that's your inspector, and then the bottom half of the screen is your timeline. And what's interesting is that so you got the pixel streaming bit in the middle. You have your kind of like regular, you know, DOM elements building the UIs on the left and the right panels, and then the bottom part of the timeline is actually a WebGL canvas. So. That was like another tricky thing it's like okay you could have probably built that using the dom as well but it was really important for me to like make sure you could have like really fluid animation when you're dragging clips in and out of the timeline just high performance high performance graphics in the browser itself so we have like this whole webgl you know component that's you know a huge part of the application as well
1: got it so the preview window is is pixel streamed and i want to yep. dive into that in a sec and then the timeline is webgl client side and then what's sort of tying everything together? Is it like React or?
0: So we use Svelte. I I am a huge, I used to be a huge React evangelist. I still love React and what it is done for the web community. I listened to Rich Harris's talk on rethinking reactivity a few years ago, and it totally changed my mind on just like how, like the efficiency that you can get out of Svelte. Because there are a lot of times, especially like when I build UIs, like I like to have a lot of animations. I like to have you know, things running really smoothly. And I have run into the cases where you have to bypass the virtual DOM in order to get the kind of experience that you want. And listening to the talk about how Svelte worked under the hood, I was like, oh, this is the next big thing. It's like, you had the first 10 years of JavaScript and like jQuery being all imperative APIs and the next 10 years of like component libraries and React and virtual DOM kind of driving that. And then I think this like next 10 years is going to be, you know compiler optimizations and i also i'm, I'm really excited for spelt 5 and what's kind of going on with runes and kind of bringing signals back into the mix and, and trying to figure that out that there's as our code base has grown grown there's definitely areas where like some readability improvements that i think are going to come with spelt 5 will be really really helpful but spelt is definitely a really awesome way to drive i think all of the, the updates from the state it's it's super high performance and it works. It works great. So
1: nice. So does it Svelte essentially own the state between like the timeline and the backend and and kind of in the uh, middle? It, right it doesn't. Of...
0: It doesn't entirely own the state. There's we have a couple of different places where state exists, and we're working on you know refactoring some of these to make it a little bit cleaner. Because some things do exist, you know, purely with like Spelt stores, which are a really really quick way to like prototype. I think like pieces of the application. And then we do use state machines to drive a lot of other pieces of the application. So you can, like, especially within applications, complex as a video editor, there's so many different edge cases and how different pieces interact with each other. So we do use state machines to try to, like, map out that user experience. Um, And then there's a little bit of custom magic that happens in WebAssembly and a library that we built specifically for our own multiplayer experience that owns, Mm -hmm. like, the actual multiplayer collaborative timeline experience. And so, but all these things, you know, they they get fed through, you know, Svelte's you know, reactive blocks and that's what ultimately drives the user interface.
1: Makes sense. So Svelte is kind of sitting between the, this WASM state component that you've built that's sort of managing, and maybe in some sense owning that state, but then it's feeding it to the views through Svelte.
0: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think there's like, there's a bunch of different places where state can exist. All of them ultimately like feed through Svelte, which then is like kind of routing that into the proper components, whether that is the DOM or the WebGL canvas and like providing all of the, the reactive updates there. And it's definitely been really, really, I think one of the things that's so powerful Svelte too, is like some of their built-in primitives, like for example, for animations, they're like the same thing as like any other like reactive store, in Svelte. And one of the things that we've actually done is just like take some of the things that would just be a regular like, state update and then wrap a Svelte like tweened animated store around it. And then let the Svelte engine just drive an animation in the UI. But it all happens through like the reactive like syntax in Svelte, which is super cool. And that was just, you know, it's just batteries included in that library.
1: Nice. And then I'm interested in the, in the, WebAssembly state piece as well. So is that the piece, does that sort of own the WebSocket connection or is the WebSocket connection owned on the Svelte side?
0: That is, it's a little bit of a mess. I I would say that it's, I guess it's, it's not really owned by, the. I would say that there's like just a separate like communication layer where a bunch of other stuff like flows through. So the, what's cool about our little collaborative library is that it could be the communication layer the transport layers uh, it can be whatever you want so we do use web sockets for a lot of the real-time messaging but we could also use like web rtc data channels and so like digging into the the web assembly a, a little bit more i'll just give you a little background like when i first started prototyping sequence we used i used a very 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 early version of the auto merge rust backend. i think it was still super unstable but it had much, much better performance at the time than the JavaScript version. So I built our tech demo using that, ran into a couple challenges with the kind of data structures that we use in our timeline to you know, have really, really, basically like a lot of linked lists and subtrees, which like when you're trying to reorder them in a collaborative environment becomes difficult. And so Automerge just didn't handle those out of the box. But the work that Marty Klutman has has done and the research is published was a huge amount of inspiration for what we ended up rolling our own basically timeline crdt and initially prototyped that out in javascript typescript and then as we started working on the back end side built the rust version of that and then found out that we couldn't keep the two of them in sync like mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. the actual implementations and so we just went ahead really really early on pulled the trigger on just going all in on the Rust version, compiling that to WebAssembly and then using that on the client side. So what's cool is that our rendering engine that's running on the server and then like the view, you know, rendering that's happening on the client, they're both working off the same code that is creating the, the, the project state through WebAssembly.
1: I see, so the same, Synchronization layer that is synchronizing between client A and client B is also synchronizing between client A and the server that is responsible exactly. for the rendering. That's yeah, really cool.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely simplified things a lot. It's it's interesting that you know I'm a big fan of like local first software. Obviously, the, the point of sequence is that it is cloud first, but we're using a lot of local first techniques to make it feel really fast, make it really work really well. We actually like with the CRDT, you know, they're I think a lot of folks have like taken a kind of Figma style, like put a server in the middle approach to simplify some aspects. Our thing is actually like a pure CRDT. Like mm-hmm. there is a server in the middle that's just like transacting the state back to, to a database just so we can have that saved. But it's it's kind of cool. Like the, And theoretically you could actually take sequence just like the, the data model piece and actually run it locally and work offline and then come back later and like synchronize it with someone else. And like, it'll all just match would work. Um was that a
1: design intention or did it just sort of work It, was, it, was, CRDT, it uh, was I didn't
0: want to build a server piece in the middle that was going to be responsible for arbitrating state conflicts. So we just that, made it totally conflict free.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's essentially your own your own CRDT layer. Like you're not it's, building yeah, a, our a own CRDT. Work.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, I'm interested as well in in the Connection between the Wasm side and the Spelt side is it? Are you just using Bindgen, or is there something that you're doing more to avoid copies on the edge there?
0: Yeah, I think it's just Wasm well Bindgen. There's, there's definitely we recently hit a bottleneck with the kind of like transferring data across the across that that bridge where we were serializing way way too much, and we had to to go back and kind of rethink a little bit of that. So it definitely makes me I think a little bit. I'm curious at how some of these like bottlenecks can be solved down the line with with that layer. And I think there's some there's some new things being prototyped with like I think like WebAssembly Components, I think is what it's called. But yeah, you know, I was shocked at how quickly you can you can feel that bottleneck of transferring data between the, the two the two sides, um, especially when you're trying to do real-time updates at like 60 frames per second. It can it can really, really affect your performance.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I guess the, the main advantage that drove you to this wasm model is that you could run, I guess your, your backend server is rust as well. So you could run the same state code on both sides rather yeah. than say performance on its own. Yep.
0: Um,
1: cool. I'm also interested in the, let's talk about the timeline, the WebGL uh, implementation there. What was that like? Are, are you using any libraries for that or just.
0: Yeah, so I actually found the start of a library called Svelte. So, so we use Pixie to handle a lot of like the WebGL kind of like stuff on top of it, because it it just has so many batteries included features for sprites and implementing a lot of the event handlers and stuff. But there was a guy, Matt Jennings, who actually had started a set of Svelte bindings for Pixie. And I went ahead and sponsored some more work on that to take those to the level that we kind of needed in particular one of the things i've noticed in a lot of applications sometimes when you're like using a request animation frame is uh sometimes an app won't be super smart about that and will be calling that every single frame and like completely re-rendering your canvas which then makes if you're on a laptop your laptop grow very warm very hot and consume a lot of battery so one of the interesting things that i wanted to do from the very beginning was tap into you know this idea that you know you're only updating the view if, you know, your state changes. So we built this kind of like spelt C binding where you can basically make it so that you're only ever updating this like WebGL component when your state changes and it's not running in its own render cycle. So it's super efficient that when you're not moving your mouse around, you're not dragging clips around or nothing's like, not, it's not continuously re-rendering that. So it it helps free up a lot of the cycles on your on your machine. Nice.
1: I'm also curious about persistence. When you save document state, as are you just using kind of a standard relational database, or are you doing anything interesting there?
0: I don't think we're doing anything too interesting. We do. We did use we picked Scylla as our kind of persistence layer because of the performance. Basically, just didn't want to run into any, any like anything slow, right? In the in getting your data out of the database and writing to the database, we were just like, let's pick something super fast. Now, this was an early design design decision, who knows, it might come back and buy this a little bit more, down the line, but you know, in our small testing right now, like the, the throughput is unbelievable. So it's, it's very, very fast.
1: Are you able to essentially just take the, this memory snapshot of the CRDT or the internal representation of the CRDT and just throw that in the database or.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We have like some kind of caching. Yeah. We have like a caching layer taking snapshots and I, I. I'm really, really interested, though, in like down the line, figuring out how to build better better ways to query materialized views of CRDTs. I think that this is going to be kind of a challenge as more things become live, real-time multiplayer experiences where you have kind of a working in-memory model that your saved version doesn't necessarily reflect is how can you build, you know, your typical, REST or like GraphQL API, where you can go and query data within that model without having to like go and load that whole thing up into memory. I'm really, really interested in figuring out better patterns for creating materialized views for doing those types of queries down the line. That's something we haven't quite figured out yet.
1: Yeah. That's something that makes a lot of sense to me. I, I think we, we've we seen that even in kind of trivial ways, where if you have some some CRDT, like even just Converting it all to JSON can be, or JavaScript objects can be faster than try to iterate it as a CRDT. But then there's this question of like, how often do you need to do that? Because you don't know when things have changed. And so for rendering yeah. the preview window, that's I, I take it uh, WebRTC if that runs in the browser. So you're doing WebRTC yeah.
0: streaming. Yeah, WebRTC. We actually sponsored a an open source plugin for GStreamer called WebRTC Sync that takes care of a lot of basically like they there was an a there is a gstreamer and by the way, gstreamer is an open source multimedia framework super super powerful think of it it's like the analogy is if you have like React and Next.js like React is like the view library, right? And like Next is the framework. In the video multimedia world, you have like FFmpeg, it's kind of like the library that does all of like the 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 work, right? And then to build more complex applications on top of it, you need a framework. And Gstreamer is basically a framework that can wrap FFmpeg as well as other like multimedia libraries to build more complex applications where you can actually move video buffers through different filters or, in this case, encoders, and then basically streaming it over RTP WebRTC and doing all the ne- negotiation. So they had a WebRTC element already created but it was a little bit challenging to, to set up and use and you had to do a lot of work. So basically we sponsored this kind of like batteries included version where it's like really plug and play. You just point it at a couple of things, you implement your event handlers for it and like you're off to the races. And I think they actually have added a, like that was a kind of a producer side of it. So it's like for sending stuff. And they actually, I think so they sponsored a like receiver. So now there's like these two, like really, really easy to use building blocks for WebRTC and the GStream community
1: nice we when we've experimented with that we spent probably a couple months on figuring out the Gstreamer stuff so thank you for for sponsoring that so that next time we don't have yeah. to do that yep. the then on the, in terms of the server so you have I take it as it like a rust server or rust process that is somehow creating that frame how do you go from the rust process to either I take a GPU rendering and then sending that to Gstreamer
0: yeah, so so actually everything is kind of built in, in in GStreamer. So that's kind of where we, like, again, going back to this idea of like a multimedia framework, you know, we're doing all of the decoding, re-encoding, filtering, you know, all of that is within the context of a bunch of different GStreamer pipelines that then get, you know, ultimately produce the, the buffer that you want to see. And then that's what get, gets passed into a streaming pipeline. You know, all this is sitting within the same application and then gets blasted back to your, to your web client.
1: I see. So the the user who's doing these edits is essentially uh, under the hood. They're essentially creating a GStreamer pipeline, then, and that's what gets
0: yeah rendered. Yeah, there. Yeah, there's a lot. There's many, many different pipelines depending on like if you're viewing stuff in the library versus you're doing stuff in the timeline. Um, but yeah, ultimately at the end of the day, you know, we're using that to basically orchestrate all the setup of like the encoders and decoders and the filters, color conversion. I've definitely learned a lot more about video than I that I ever needed, that I ever realized I would need to know, I think, mm-hmm. doing this project, um, when you're trying to build a, like, a, a high performance professional grade video editor, you, there's so many formats out there and working with high fidelity media and a higher bit depth, just, there's so much math in terms of like, the amount of compute work that you have to do, cause you might first, you got to decode, you know, this file, and then it's going to be in some sort of color space uh, color format, and then you're going to want to like apply some sort of effect or composite, and then maybe your other clip is in a different ones. Now you got to map those two things together. And so you got to like figure out how to plug in the right, like color converters and, you know, get it. So it's all in a uniform space. Then you can actually do the compositing. And then maybe in our case, you know, it's like when we have to encode that into this WebRTC string, that has to be in a different color space. So then you gotta like do all that math again to convert these, it's like. So it's definitely a lot of a lot of different pipelines with a lot of different elements, all having to get orchestrated to to deliver the the final set of pixels you see.
1: Uh, and and the so the real time like the in app rendering is through GStreamer, and then the final render you're just also using GStreamer for that, or
0: same thing. You just you just play it back, but instead of going into a WebRTC stream, you just put it into an encoder and write it to a flat file.
1: Nice. And then I guess in your architecture, it sounds like media files themselves, maybe the user can upload media files, but then they're not ever really coming back down to the browser aside yeah. from through the preview, which is streamed.
0: Yeah. So that's like, I think one of the things that this kind of limitation of, you know, let's do everything on the cloud unlocks a new superpower for collaboration at the professional level of video editing, because typically you're dealing with massive, massive files that are typically... You know, some people do shoot in RAW, which is like—I mean, that's not, like as big as the file is going to get, right? Because there's there's no compression there. But a lot of the time, you'll shoot in something called an intermediate codex, things like ProRes or DNx. These formats are designed actually, they're originally designed for video editing because they have compression, but usually only on a per-frame basis. So it makes randomly accessing any frame within a given file like, very, very easy. So you can get that really, really smooth scrubbing going back and forth in the timeline. So one of the challenges that I had for the team is like, you know, an average size, you know, clip for a professional editor could be like a 20 gigabyte progress file. So any like of the tests, whenever we do tests for like, you know, loading media or transcoding or whatever, it's like, we're not gonna use some tiny little H264 thing that you shoot on your phone. It's like, let's go put in this like big average size file make sure everything works. And what's cool is like after everything gets uploaded into the sequence library, you're basically just moving data around within the data center and you don't have to ever transfer those files back down onto the user's machine. So you can take a project that's 500 gigabytes to terabyte and load it up in, you know, 10, 15 seconds on a Chromebook because you don't have to load all of those massive files. Like they're all just being like dynamically read in as you need them.
1: Fascinating, yeah. And those files themselves—are you using like blob storage type thing for that, or how you actually storing those? Trade trade secret. Trade secret. All right. How about spitting up the machines? Is that a trade secret? Does everybody get? Yeah, it's.
0: Yeah, well, so everybody. So we we do have to, you know, do a lot of like multi tenancy to to get things sharing. And this is, I think, one of the things that's really just kind of funny. Like, I think when we met, Paul, like you were working on a lot of same technologies that we had to like basically create in house to get things to work. So like figuring out a lot of the orchestration for containers to, you know, map a container to each user's session. And it's like, and then you guys went ahead and basically like made that its own product. I was like, ah, which we had that, you know, when we started same thing with a lot of the like multiplayer tooling is now kind of exists as like a service, but it, these were things that just didn't exist three years ago that we had to just kind of like hobble together to, to make it work.
1: Got it. So you're, so it sounds like you, you do, at least try to multi-tenant within a VM. Like you, it's not necessarily an yeah, EC2 instance for everybody.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think there's, I think there's other interesting ways like down the line, like moving to more serverless execution models. Like I think a lot of what we do, you do have to have like kind of a, a server backed session that, and that allows you to just keep things in memory in real time for again, this kind of high performance user interface where you're scrubbing through something and you need to have things prefetched and kept in memory. And, but there are, as we've like kind of learned on this first generation architecture, there's definitely like more optimizations down the line that I think we'll be able to do um, that can, can definitely make it a lot more efficient and reduce compute costs and stuff.
1: Makes sense. Um, are you using something like Kubernetes for, for spinning things up or. We do, do use things? Kubernetes.
0: Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, I, you know, I've heard lots of folks that have kind of moved to different control planes. We are doing a lot of container orchestration, which is what Kubernetes was designed for. This is actually the first project I've ever actually had to reach for it. Cause I think sometimes folks can, you know, they'll just pick Kubernetes, but you can just deploy it to, you know, some sort of like container as a service platform or whatever. And, it, but what we're doing like really does rely a lot on thinking about like cluster as one giant machine and figuring out how to dynamically allocate the storage and how do you tie these different little pods together and thinking about it as, as one as one giant machine. So it's, Kubernetes has been, I would say a fairly good fit. There are definitely things that, you know, frustrate us about it, but I think that's kind of our for the course of Kubernetes. I don't know if we'll switch to a different type of control plane in the future. But it's it definitely. I think it was the right tool for the job.
1: I'm curious what what's your what's your kind of. I mean, you got styled, and then what else is sort of in the mix?
0: Well, yeah, I think there's I think there's a lot of different trends that are occurring simultaneously. Where you have really really powerful UI frameworks, you have amazing pre built component libraries that are open source, you have tools like chat gpt you know being able to just generate ui components and we're you we're getting to this place where like ui is becoming so cheap to build and so flexible i don't know it's i think it's just a very interesting time where you have any almost like it's getting to the point now where if you need to make a website anybody regardless of skill level can just basically pick up their computer and like make a website just by telling it what they want almost. But at the same time, I think that there's, the browser is getting more and more complex and there's, I think a widening gap between understanding the internals of like how you get things to work properly in the browser. And then like all these like amazing like batteries included tools that I'm starting to feel like there's, some of these things don't work for sequence right off. Like, for example, just you know, we have a lot of just like different really cool like effects in a browser. Like you do like a blur, like like a, like a blur on the CSS blur filter to get like that background. blur. you have to like kind of understand like the composing order in the browser. So it's like, oh, it's doing that. And then there's maybe like the webgl underneath. And then there's like, so like you can sometimes when in the browser, like you'll do these handful of things that can really, really impair the frames per second. And it's interesting that I, that the tools out there, I guess are, I'm, I, I'm really interested in figuring out how we can, you know, build more. I don't know. I guess I just want to kind of like fix the browser and not have to rely on like all these like little, like, you just have to know the history of how the browser was built to like, make sure things run really, really quickly at the same time. Like it's, it's interesting just seeing where all these different tools help with that. And then sometimes I'm still struggling with like Oh, you know, you put a box shadow on something, you can't animate that because drawing the box shadow is gonna like, not hardware accelerated or whatever. It's interesting.
1: Yeah, I found it. I find it interesting that you took the WebGL escape patch for for the timeline too, where you know you, as you said earlier, like you could have done that with the DOM, but at some point it's just kind of nice to throw that out and and really get buttery smooth graphics no matter what you're doing with it.
0: Yeah, it is. It is interesting. But like, even with that, like one of the challenges that we had with the timeline component was we actually can't think of it as components. So like, if you think about the timeline, you have a clip in the timeline, like normally in like React or Svelte or whatever, like that would be like, a component. you'd have like a little clip component, right? And you pass in all your props and, you know, then it would like put in the thumbnails and the text and all the little like audio waveform. Um, one of the things we learned when we were figuring out how pixie got the efficiency that it did for a high performance drawing is that pixie relies on batching things, Mm -hmm. basically using the same shaders, uh, or the same like textures over and over again, and just repeating those. So you have to be really, really conscious of your draw order. So this is something that was interesting coming from like a component driven development, like kind of layout. Like we had to, we had to flip from thinking about things as like componentizing them to like figuring out the draw order like layers and like things like, okay, first we're gonna lay down all the text, and then we're gonna or actually that's the top. First we're gonna lay down all the backgrounds, then we're gonna do like the text, and then we're gonna do like the image, like the sprite image like it was that was, you know, a not initially obvious thing coming from you know a world where it's like, oh, you know, normally I just like write my component, and I can encapsulate all this good, you know, functionality. And in the view layer, like inside that little component, and just reuse that everywhere. Like we couldn't do that. I think we could actually write a set of spelt bindings down the line that would figure out at runtime or compile time. I don't know, like actually how to like do the proper draw order for that efficiency. Yeah. But it it was it was something where it was like having needing to like dig a little bit deeper into the browser internals was like really really critical to get the experience that we wanted. Um, and yeah. it wasn't like, wasn't something that like, well, maybe ChatGPT could solve it now, but I don't think we were using it back then. So it, it, I think that's like the the thing that's interesting is like, and I've talked to a lot of folks that are, you know, getting started in their UI component development journeys, and I'm super jealous of all the tooling that exists now, but at the same time, I i am very interested in like, I'm, I'm not sure if like, we're becoming a little too reliant on a lot of the batteries included things. And not building like understanding of how browser internals work in order to get certain types of user experiences. And then, then everything just ends up kind of like looking and feeling the same at like the lowest common denominator.
1: Yeah. There's the whole, I mean, I'm totally guilty of it, but like the tailwind look now, you know, there's the, was it blueprint? What was the, the Twitter one? There was like, I feel like there's yeah. been all these phases of design tr- trends on the web that have. Yeah. Just totally been influenced by who had the GitHub project with the most stars for UI components at the time.
0: Tailwind, that's it's interesting you bring up Tailwind. Like I, so one of the things that I was really guilty of, like when I started building out like the original kind of design system for Sequence and stuff, I was like, we're not going to use Tailwind. First, it took me a really. I now I've converted to Tailwind. I, mm-hmm. I it finally clicked for me. I was a I was definitely a little hesitant about you know including styling in my markup, but I started rebuilding my personal site and I was like, I'm going to try this out. The thing that like really, really helped me was just thinking more in terms of like using your design tokens from your design system and just having the scales like already built in. Like Mm -hmm. it made things feel way more cohesive because you were like forced to use a constrained set of options, which I really have liked. And so we've actually adopted Tailwind into our stack and our designer Parker actually was like, this is really cool. Like in March, like he really hadn't done any component development at all. And then one of his like first PRs, a while, but like literally was integrating Tailwind into our spell, you know, setup. And which at this point was like not the most straightforward thing to do to get that mm-hmm. to work. But he ended up figuring that out and then has it hooked into our Figma. So it's like all the design tokens from the library, like are coming into the Tailwind config and, and generating all that, which is, now for all the new components that we're building and as we're going back and refactoring old ones, like it's, it's helping things feel a lot more cohesive, which is nice, but originally, yeah, I I w I didn't want to fall into like, oh, everything looks like a tailwind site because we're all using it. So I was like, we're just gonna, you know, write a bunch of stuff from scratch it's mm-hmm. just to not get that feel. And I don't know, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely a trade-off.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm curious as well And on, on UI and ChatGPTs has come up a few times. There's obviously like there's the question of of you know you're building something that's generating video. Is there there's oh. questions around generative use cases for that? But like I'm actually not that interested in that anymore, unless you have something like particularly interesting to say on that, because I feel like that topic's been de- beaten to death. But I am interested in: Do you feel like the existence of LLMs and, and things like that influence the UI at all, in the sense that? There's now things like a command bar that, you know, you could throw into an LLM. And I feel like that's going to change how user interfaces look, even in the very short term, because we yeah. you know the tech's already there and there's just overhang. So I'm curious if you're thinking about that.
0: I mean, I think there's the one example I can think of off the top of my head that has already impacted me is, and we use Linear for all of our task management stuff, and they ship a little AI feature where, and it's actually interesting because it's not I, I was actually struggling to find it the other day. So at the linear team, hopefully you listen to this and hmm. maybe add this somewhere else. I was going to, I don't know if it was, it's not, it's not in the regular search. It was in the filter. If you go to filter, there's an AI filter, which is different from search. Hmm. And what it will do is you can type in your natural you know, language or whatever, and then it builds you know, the filter in it, you know, then it puts in all the structured data and stuff. And I don't know exactly what they're doing under the hood to make that work. Maybe it's not, I don't know if they're using an LLM or a different natural language processing tool, but I really, really liked that because it was like, oh, I have all these tickets with all these tags and things, but like, I didn't want to have to go through all the clicks Mm -hmm. to get my like structured view of that. I just wanted to tell it's like, this is what I want. And it it magically, you know, spit out the right query for that, which as a user, I was like, oh, this is cool. And then again, it's like, it was a weird thing where it's like kind of buried. And mm-hmm. I, sometimes I've like wanted to use it in the search and then it, it's not in the, the regular search, but for a library of media, I am very, very interested in leveraging something like this because media, you know, especially with now all the tools to gather additional, labels on you know what's in a clip what people are saying the intent of what people are saying the emotional connotation like there's so many different ways you can label all of this and as much as i love like a good you know like collection and notion with all the right like filters set up it's like it's a lot of work Hmm. for someone to go in label things and then build like a view or a ui to actually go in and like access those things and like set up the right way for you to get what you want out of that data. And I think that at least in the world of video editing, there's this whole role of like the assistant editor, which does a lot of this like labeling work and sorting and organizing your library. And that's one of the things where I'm really interested in using LLMs and AI to like figure out how do we build not just both a better automated labeling pipeline to get a lot of that sorting done automatically, but then also as a user, as an editor, you know, you need to go and like pull up the clip that you want. How do we reduce that time to you getting that bit of the story that you want to tell into the timeline? And that's, we have, a, we have a couple different mock-ups in our, in our Figma right now with, with some interesting, like kind of search experiments. Um, we haven't built out any of the search stuff in our library yet, which as our projects, it's, it's funny about like, Sequences, you know, we're building a whole new video editor from the ground up. So it's like a lot of things are missing. And then it's like, every time we like get a new feature, like added, because that like solves some problem, it then opens up like the next layer of like challenges that it's like, oh, now like, so for example, like we just, we finally hooked up all of our commenting stuff to like an actual notifications. And so we're like getting all the emails, which again, super easy. We just hadn't gotten to it in a while. And, uh. So it's really, really fun. Like everybody is using a sequence so much more because it's sticky and they're getting that, that pain to come back into the app. But now that we have the actual notifications coming in, it's like, I want to be able to tag people. I want to be able to link to other clips. I want to be able to drop normal links. in. I want to be able to tag buttons. Like there are all these other things that like take it. And it's funny because like, you just don't feel that pain until you've got there. It. So it's like, after we got you know, more of the complex, like library organization tools in place. It was like, and now we're putting more media in the library. It's like, I need more search. Like I need more ways to like visualize this. So if that's, that's what's kind of a fun part though, about like dog fooding your own product is like, you know, if you're using it all the time, you very quickly feel what's the most painful problem and then can go focus on that.
1: Makes sense. Yeah. How are you? What Like, I'm curious what, what dog fooding is like for you guys. Like what's the, what's. Oh, you guys, I mean, I saw the, the trailer movie or the teaser that yeah. you guys put out. So yeah, was the trailer like, was, the trailer was
0: definitely one of the, that was like one of the, that was like the first like big project we did in sequence. And uh, it was funny because I think WWDC was right around the corner and that was going to be when Apple announced the the Apple Vision headset. And I was like, okay, guys, like we we can't, we can't put this trailer out after WWDC <laughs> because everybody on Twitter is just going to be talking about this headset for that next news cycle. So remember when I said we had like a month to get this? Well, now we have like a week and a half to go and do this. And sequence had finally gotten to the point where it was like stable enough where we could you know, use it to, to make this and we had the commenting and stuff hooked in. And Parker and I, like I was actually traveling. And so this was like the ultimate like live collaboration where I was like halfway across the, the globe and I would wake up, I would like see the latest version of the timeline, you know, make some small changes myself, leave a bunch of comments. And then when we like, had times that overlaps, overlapped, we would hop on a call together, repeat in the timeline, like discussing larger editorial changes before, you know, agreeing to make them. And it was something where we could not have made that project as quickly as we did at the quality that we did with the number of like iterations without having a real time shared time. It was the old style where it was just like Parker would make something in, in Premiere and then Dropbox me a link or whatever like and you know you don't see a new edit for you know eight to twelve hours I, you get like a, we would have gotten like seven updates in that time frame instead mm-hmm. of literally just being able to go in there and like it's like oh you know I wanted to cut out that half of that sentence like I just went and just cut it and then that saved you know a whole hour round trip sort of thing so. We have a bunch more videos in the work. It's definitely been something where we haven't put out anything since then. There's been a lot happening behind the scenes. Some fundraising, I'm very excited to announce. Thank you, yeah. There's some amazing hires by the time by the time this, this comes out that I'll probably have announced, but we just brought on our new CTO video systems, Brian Williams, who he spent the last 10 years at Adobe, as a senior architect on premiere pro before that he spent 20 years at avid so he has literally lived through and worked on two of like the most popular editing tools in the world and two generations of that and we're very very excited to see what he's going to bring to this like third generation in le so that's really exciting and we also have a a new front end engineer starting next week that i'm really really excited about so lots of Lots of exciting things happening, but going back to videos, we, Parker and I were talking about dropping a few more videos over the next couple months. So we have a few things that we're editing right now. We have a new feature that lets you actually export your timeline into resolve or premiere. So you can actually do any of the kind of finishing color grading that we can't currently do in sequence. So you can actually just bring that in. So it's a cool, like little escape patch. So once we get picture lock on a couple of things. We're actually going to take it out and then finish it in another tool and then publish video so that's really going to speed up our workflow as we continue to add more of those features in the sequence so we're going to get into a better cadence i think it'll be like probably shooting for like monthly videos for the next six months and then hopefully we'll get that down to like bi-weekly but yeah definitely a lot more videos on this thank
1: you Another thing that came to mind is when you're, I mean, it's a fairly heavyweight piece of software, I imagine if it's editing video and there's a number of complex pieces moving around, what's the developer environment and the developer workflow oh, for you?
0: So yeah, this is <laughs> the, now that now I'm going to be on record saying this and the, and the dev team is just going to, they hate it when I say this. So one of my goals, cause I literally started sequence on a Chromebook. Like I'm, I'm calling you from an iMac now, but like. I do use, I have two Chromebooks. I have, this is an HP X211 something. And then I have a, I have a Pixelbook Go, which I also really like. And I do use them very, very often. You know, it's crazy going from like, you know, multiple monitors, like, and then I'm just like on my little tiny little like Chromebook. But the idea, one of the things that, like as a company, anyone that works at Sequence should be able to, the only thing you need is a web browser. Like, and you should be able to do everything. So we have, we use Gitpod for a lot of our development. So we have, you know, these kind of like shared pre-configured IDEs that are are running on the cloud. And that's been really nice because it's all the tooling is then shared across everyone at any time. You know, you have to install a new dependency or whatever. You just do it once and then everybody gets it the next time they open it up. We've started working on some of our own. Internal like build tools. Uh, we have this like new little tool called Showtime that is like basically like just a little CLI that like helps you build everything because so many because we're using so many different stacks, whether it's like Node or Rust or there's a little bit of Python in there, like all these different things, and they all have like different commands and like the systems for running them. So now we've just like wrapped those in our own CLI. So it's like Showtime build web app or like whatever. And you can just like, so I'm, I'm very interested in like building this really, really powerful developer experience internally to the company where it's like, it's your first day, you can click a button and just write some code in this ID that appears magically in your browser and then commit it. And then you get a deployment and someone can review it and then just ship it on the first day. Right. So we have a lot of like Internal documentation, Docs as code, a little internal doc site that we built out. I went really overboard in the beginning. Tried to use something called Backstage, which is a really cool developer portal building tool. Open source. Just the one from uh, oh, Spotify. Okay. Yes. Uh, yeah, a right, little right. heavyweight for what we needed, but I was I was fighting my PTSD from being at a big company where there was no mm-hmm. internal developer documentation or tooling, and uh, so trying to strike like a little bit of a balance between you know being a scrappy startup moving quickly, but like. I think for the stage that we're at, I'm, I'm pretty excited about, like, the amount of, like, internal documentation and, like, tooling that we have around around things. Of course, it's never as good as you want it to be, but mm-hmm. it's, it's cool that, like, I can literally just pick up my Chromebook and, like, go and, you know, start working on this, like, GP rendering stuff just, like, from wherever. Yeah.
1: Is there anything else you'd like people to know?
0: Well, we're going to have our... Alpha Access is going to be opening up pretty shortly. We're going to be bringing on a lot more people to test out Sequence. So if you want to be a part of that, best thing to do is follow follow us on Twitter. There's a sign-up page on our website, Sequence.film, and then we're going to be dropping more videos on our YouTube channel. So give us a follow. Don't forget to like and subscribe. What's the Twitter handle? At Sequence underscore film.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much. This was fascinating. I learned a ton. I'm very excited to try it out. And uh, yeah, well, it was great to catch up. We'll have to catch up next time you're out in New York yeah. or I'm out in the West Coast.
0: Thank you so much, Paul. I really enjoyed being on the podcast and uh, let will do it again soon. Sounds great. All right. Take care. Yeah. See ya. Bye.
1: That was my conversation with Lucas McArland. Thanks to Lucas for joining me and thank you for tuning in to the very first episode of the Browser Tech Podcast. You can subscribe to the Browser Tech Digest at digest.browsertech.com and check out browsertech.com for our in-person events. You can find me, your host Paul, on Twitter at PaulGB. Until next time, goodbye.